on the order of 275 billion, the U.S. financial system actually earns more being paid by the Fed to park the money that the Fed printed. Okay, they're being paid more in that than they are in profits. I mean, well, that, that does a point, really good job to make sure that they're very customer centric yeah, and that they're worried it, about the economy yeah. and actual business and things yeah. like boots on the ground, you know, yeah. like real skin in the game there. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus no, Christ. Uh, so it's shocking. I mean, at, at, at some point, your financial system is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Federal Reserve. A chat with the best in Bitcoin. I'm Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I'm Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we've got a great chat today. So I have been seeing a lot of Peter St. Ange in a uh, excellent little kind of three to five minute uh, breakdown videos on Twitter. And he has basically been doing daily detailing on the situation in the banking crisis on the Fed and the Treasury and everything that's like kind of a piecemeal view of things as they uh, as they play out in the environment that we are in, which happens to be a very, very busy job of keeping up day to day all of the crazy stuff that's going on because a lot of crazy stuff is going on. And uh, and he's also we've done a couple of pieces of him of his on the show before. Um, he's an Austrian economist, and I'll let him introduce himself a little bit right at the beginning. But uh, uh, I just wanted to get him on because I, I really want, I really enjoy taking a lot of different perspectives, um, or at least just getting the various viewpoints within the space of those watching this fiat crisis unfold. Uh, because there's actually quite a bit of nuance or disagreement in where people think things are going. The people who think there's going to be hyperinflation next year, the people who are more worried about the debt deflation, uh, the people who are worried about the banking crisis and not even being able to have any control over your money or what if your deposits get bailed in. Like there's there's so many potential outcomes here. And not that I want to, um, you know, overburden the the potential here with, you know, a hundred different terrible things that could happen. But we're looking at pressures in an environment that has to respond to players that have to take some course of action. Um, and I think Peter St. Ange is uh, particularly well grounded in the way he thinks about it, or at least that's that's my assessment of it, of the stuff that I uh, consume from him. So he's a really great resource and uh, I don't want to lead anymore because we have a really, really awesome discussion um, and uh, I think you guys are really going to love it. So really quick, I just want to say thank you to Fold um, and do not forget that they have the 100,000 free sats just for trying out the card and that is literally just signing up with your email, getting the virtual card and then spending, sending $20 to it and then spending it somewhere. And then you will get more than $20 in sats for free. Seriously, this is a really good offer. You just should try it to get $23 in Bitcoin. Actually, that's more like $30, like $28, I think. And then you know where you get to put that? You get to put that on your cold card, or your tap signer, or your open dime. One of the 
numerous amazing Bitcoin hardware and security devices that you can get at CoinKai. And you can get 9% off of that with the oh-so-convenient code that is also the name of the show, Bitcoin Audible. My God, those are two amazing deals. I can't believe, I can't believe I'm not taking advantage of this right at this moment. You should. You should go to the description and check out those links. And then come right back. Because it is time for our conversation with Peter St. Ange. An Austrian view of the U.S. collapse. I just want to say, uh, welcome to the show. Um, I've you know read your stuff a number of times on the show, and uh, been following you for quite a while. And I've been seeing your stuff in my feed. I really like the new like little short form video <laughs> updates and stuff that you've got. Um, so I'll, I'll make sure I recommend that and like stick that in the description or whatever, so people can follow awesome. if they if they Thank aren't aware you. of it. Um, but you've had a lot of great points. I specifically wanted to have you on because uh, you've had just a lot of great breakdowns of stuff that's going on in the banking crisis and the monetary crisis and everything. And um, uh, it's just been, I mean, it's been a constant stream of push and pull and, you know, what's going to happen because every week there's just another decision-making group that, you know, was gonna, is going to change their mind at any minute and... Who knows where we're going to be in six months, a year. Um, so uh, I wanted to wanted to refresh that conversation. I wanted to sit down with you um, and and really, really dig into it. Um, so really quick, uh, maybe just introduce yourself to the yep. audience and let them know. Uh, sure. I'm Peter St. Ange. Um, I am a Austrian school economist. Uh, I was a professor in Taiwan for about five years and then... You know, I kind of felt like I was a little bit remote from the fight, so came back to North America, now in the U.S. Uh, and I do daily videos, basically, what, they're like three and a half minute videos breaking down what's going on. For better or for worse, there's been a ton of content lately. You know, I, I do them video, or I, I, I do them daily, but I can barely keep up with all that's going on. So I think we're at a stage that I don't think I've seen really until 2008, when things were, uh, you know, once in a century catastrophes were happening like every week and it feels like we're coming back to that. Yeah. Yeah. For better or for worse, it, I would agree. Um, we're in a really, really weird spot. Um, and, you know, I was listening to, uh, I think it was Balaji earlier today, um, uh, talking about how we've kind of entered this space where it feels like, and he was using the comparison to the Soviet Union, that the United States has basically passed its monetary prime and the empire has essentially collapsed and lost its hold, so to speak, on the geopolitical environment. But we're still just kind of pretending like that hasn't happened. Um, and uh, yeah. and so much of this is related to, obviously, the, the value of treasuries, the, the the foreign investment in, you know, debt as the global reserve, as U.S. debt as the global reserve. Um, maybe maybe give me a big picture overview of where we are before we start digging down into the details. Like, like what do you see is kind of like what's the broader trend? Maybe start back in 2008 to where we are today. And um, what um what do you think the future trajectory is absent all you know minute details yeah so uh, balaji has fantastic metaphors for things and i think that is a great way to kind of frame it at the start you know so i was growing up in the 1980s and everybody was afraid of the soviet union 
and you know it was going to take over the world. And of course, we now know that the Soviet Union was essentially Mexico with nukes. In other words, it had a essentially third world economy. It had the economic weight, really the power of a Mexico that had somehow stumbled across nuclear weapons. And so, you know, it all looks kind of like a joke at the time. Um, but of course, what had happened in the Soviet Union was that they were still militarily formidable, but they were hutted, uh, gutted. They were like hollowed out on the inside. Uh, it was just a hard shell. And I think that that's a good way to look at where the U.S. is going. We're not quite as extreme. We're not quite to Mexico with nukes yet, uh, but we are definitely on the way there. And, you know, if you ask, like, broadly, where did that trend start? You know, it, uh, part of it depends how far back you want to go. Right. So FDR, Wilson, uh, Nixon, you know, these are three people who really accelerated it this century. And it in this context means that, you know, the way the U.S. Constitution uh, first set up the rules of the game are that the government can do very, very little. Right. So only the delegated powers There's almost nothing in there. Like you can name post offices and uh, and have an embassy and there's really not much in there. Uh, in yeah. fact, you can't uh, print money, for example. Um, you can regulate, meaning that you can ensure that a gold coin has, like a one-ounce gold coin is actually, you know, has a one-ounce in it. Uh, states were the ones who were allowed to print money, and they could only make it out of gold or silver. Uh, gold or silver, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, there, there was just this massive range of powers that... Uh, the U.S. government has today that did not have back then. You did not have a, a permissioned economy. Uh, you had the right to work at any wage. You had, it, just like you have the right to free speech, well, <laughs> currently under threat, but your, your economic rights for the first 200 years or 150 years of the Republic, your economic rights were co-equal to your political rights. Okay, so you could sell any product you want. If the government wanted to come in and stop it, they, they, that was unconstitutional. They, they did mm -hmm. not have the power to do that. Now, judges at various times... Well, it seems times, crazy to think that yeah. economic, economic rights are going to be separate somehow. Like, you know, like For economic sure. rights are yeah. just... It's just the economic instantiation of what we personally decide. You know, it's, right. it's like saying you have the freedom to marry whoever you want, or you have the freedom to love whoever you want, but you're going to marry who we say you're going to marry. It's like, well, right. that's meaningless. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, if you take uh, free speech, for example, so if you uh, can choke somebody off for saying the wrong thing, then, mm -hmm. you know, at that stage, I guess they can talk to themselves in the shower. They could talk to their kids, maybe. I mean, yeah, you have complete free speech. Yeah. You can say anything you want alone in the shower. But, you know, I mean, that's that's substantively you no longer have that right. So all of your other rights derive from fundamentally your economic rights. And the Supreme Court over the past century has failed to <laughs> to appreciate that. And they have gutted uh, economic rights. And, you know, I think if we sort of name what's the big trend that is driving us down the tubes, uh, you know, by gutting those rights, I mean, really, it's the same story as the Soviet Union, just, you know, in, mm -hmm. a, in a more diluted form that once you gut those rights, you go down the path to socialism and that takes you where the Soviets were. And so, you know, I think what we're looking at now when we talk about 2008 or what's happening now, these sort of echoes of 2008, that trend towards socialism, towards taking power away from the people and giving it to government that is, it's gutting our economy 
It's gutting our banks. Uh, I mean, in a sense, it's gutting all of uh, society. You know, so living somewhere like Taiwan or Japan, these are both substantially poorer countries than the U.S. Okay, in terms of GDP per capita, Japan's about maybe two thirds or three quarters of the U.S. It's not mm-hmm. nearly as 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 rich as it is here. Uh, Taiwan is is of course even lower. You know, it's closer to maybe half the U.S. level. And guess what? Everything works there. It's safe. It's you know, <laughs> c- c- communities function wonderfully. You have you know little vendors. Uh, if somebody loses their job, the standard, you don't have generous welfare over there, right? So if you lose your job, the assumption is that you're going to go start some small business. It'd take you about a hundred bucks to get a sign made up for your, you know, whatever, for your noodle stand that, you know, you're just going to go to some street, maybe uh, rent a couple of chairs or borrow them from friends and throw them in, in you know, in into a flatbed, little mini pickup truck, and you go set up a restaurant. Boom. You do that at night to make ends meet while you look for a job during the day. It's a completely different mentality, and it's one that we had here, you know, for for most of U.S. history, for the period where we became the model for the entire world, we had an almost completely free market. One of my favorite examples is ball games in I actually have I actually have one question about yeah, Japan. No, sure. really quick. You don't actually yeah. have to have any sort of license or anything to do that? There are informal mechanisms where you don't have to. Uh, So basically, mafia controls various territories. And you give Uh them a small cut, including right next to the university I used to teach at. I had the review in my head if I'm allowed to say this. Yes. There are rumors that the region around (laughs) my university in Taichung... Allegedly. (laughs) There are alleged rumors, which I'm I'm sure are not true. But at any rate, these rumors do exist. Uh, and you know, the basic rule there would be don't cause any trouble. So, uh, if you're not washing your dishes, you know, if you've, if you've got some hygiene issue, that's, you know, going to make everybody else look bad in the entire night market, then yeah, they'll come by and they'll say, dude, you got to wash your dishes. Uh, there's little guys, by the way, who go around and wash, they'll actually wash your entire kitchen. They'll, they'll like go around at closing time for the restaurants. And I mean, it's just, Oh, that's cool. it's, It's like this hyper capitalism and. And in fact, the school I was teaching at is called Fengjia in, uh, in Taichung, in central Taiwan. It's really fun. We had this street in front of the school, and it swapped out. I did an article on this a couple of years ago. It swapped out one, two, three. It swapped out four times over the course of the day. So you had completely different businesses. So early morning, it was like a farmer's market, and you had a bunch of guys drive in from the provinces, and they're selling potatoes and carrots and whatnot. They pack up, and then around, I guess around 8, 8 a.m. or so, you get the guys who come out with, with or it's mostly women, with the uh, breakfast joints. They got little folding chairs, okay? And then they all clear out, and the, the regular restaurants do the lunch. So, and, I mean, the streets are packed with people. Mm-hmm. There's so many restaurants. Uh, and then come evening time now... The, you know, they're, they're selling sort of a festival style food like cotton candy or they're selling clothes or cell phone cases. Okay, so these guys come out, the kind of merchandise gang. And back behind the buildings, there's kind of these little parking lots where all those little stands go when they're not in mm-hmm. use. So you've got this street that is literally recycled four times during the day. You, you know, and, and it's fantastic. I mean, you know, you can, you can get anything. We used to live right next to that street. You can go, you can get your groceries in the morning. You can get your pre-made breakfast, which costs about 40 cents, which even adjusting for the incomes, that would be like 80 cents in the U.S., 
Okay, nobody cooks wow. in Taiwan because it's almost free. Wow. Why? Because it's low regulation. All right, so you've got like this whole thing in there. And throughout it all, you have the alleged mafia who keeps an eye on things. You know, they, they put out the uh, trash cans to make sure nobody's dropping trash in the street. I mean, it is, it is shocking um, how well it works. And so we came back from there to North America. First, we came to Montreal. And I mean, it was shocking. It's like a ghost town. There's nobody out. Like even in the summertime in Montreal. And you get used to it in Taiwan where anytime you want something, if you think, you know what, I could use a latte right now. Within like, I mean, like a hundred feet, there's going to be a guy selling a latte. It's like, that's it crazy. Your mind. And then you go to yeah. Montreal and it's just shocking. And of course, you know, you go somewhere like New York and I mean, now it's even worse where it just feels like a ghost town. And it, you know, I've gone back and, and you might not find a latte, but you'll probably get shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You'll just catch a bullet instead. Yeah. And, and, you know, keep, keep in mind when I'm talking about Taiwan, Taiwan is much poorer than the U S yeah. it's not like the police are underfunded. Okay. They are way overfunded. I think the difference is that if you talk to Taiwanese, um, it, it, so it's one of the best functioning governments I ever see in my life. And if you talk to Taiwanese, they're all convinced that every single one of those politicians and bureaucrats are crooks. Okay. Yeah. They think they're all disgusting. You can't trust them. They're just going to steal money. They're going to give money to their friends. And then you come to the U.S. and you see these people who are sitting there with the tears running down. <laughs> you know, my God, they're God in elected. love. Obama, my God. It's a miracle. <laughs> We're delivered. All right, and there's a distinction there, right? So one government yeah. functions because the people police it. They don't trust it as far as they can throw it. And the other mm -hmm. one, you've got this almost religious worship of policy, of, of change. And guess what? The government gets away with all kinds of crap. You know, the fact that U.S. streets are so unsafe, when we spend this much money on police, it is really a tremendous amount of money that we spend on public safety. The schools... You know, there are some cities like Detroit or Baltimore where you've got like one or zero kids in the school who are con who can actually read or, you know, who are numerate, can do basic arithmetic. These are extraordinarily yeah. expensive. Right? Even in Detroit, Baltimore, a lot of these school districts are more expensive than the average in the U.S. The thing is that the American people do not demand better. And so it is shocking when you go to a country like Taiwan, most of Asia... Uh, and and you see that, you know, what can be done with like a fifth the budget if the people actually demand competence. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I interrupted you with you said no, there no, was no, a, please, yeah. uh, an example um, that you're getting to. I'm not sure if you remember your train of thought. Baseball. But. Yes. Yeah. OK, so th this this for me is like one of those pictures where it just reminds me what they've taken from us, what the bastards have taken. So in Philly, they had a ballpark. I want to say Shine Field. Somebody who's Philadelphia is going to correct me. I'm actually from <laughs> Philly, but <laughs> but anyway, so they had this baseball um, stadium and it was kind of open on the sides so that mm -hmm. if you climbed up on a house across the street, you could watch the ball game, right? So, okay, yeah. yeah, this is back in like 1910. You know, this is back when government was small, regulations were, well, it, we can get into the false, well, the, philosoph the philosophy on what regulations existed was similar to Asia. In other words, just don't bother people. I don't care what it yeah, says yeah, on yeah. paper, just don't bug people. So this was that era. And so what happened was entrepreneurs went up on top of these row houses and they put up rows of bleachers 
And then, you know, every house has a kitchen. So you like cook up stuff down in the kitchen. And so now people were sitting on the bleachers. They can get a spaghetti. They can get a hot dog. Right. So each each of those house kitchens now turns into a row of restaurants. You know, so it's cheap. It's I mean, just like that's the entrepreneurship that we used to have in this country. And you know, I mean, it was very similar to Taiwan. If you ran into a rough patch, then you went out and figured out some way that you can provide service to people such that they're willing to pay you. So you might, you know, you might uh, uh, shovel their snow, you might wash the dishes in their restaurant, right? You would figure out Mm -hmm. some way to make ends meet instead of, you know, we've had now a hundred years of training people to just sort of sit there like, ah, I've fallen, pick me up, sort of rely on government to do it for them. And that might possibly work if government were competent. But unfortunately, if you've got the people who are waiting to be taken care of, and now you've got this government that is just shockingly incompetent, you put that together and you get, you know, if you look at inner city uh, Detroit, for example, and you compare that to somewhere really vibrant, like say Lagos, Nigeria, you would much, much rather be in the third world than you would in what has become of American cities. And I think that's the fatal combination. You got a big government that has then gone on to train the people to passively wait for them to do something and they can't do it. They're incapable. Yeah. That's crazy, man. It really is. It really is kind of, it's insane to see the second and third order effects and if you don't understand the kind of fundamental shift that's occurred, like, like kind of the the monetary base that has caused this degree of manipulation and centralization in the system that has led to these bad incentives and then the growing incompetence of those in charge and the growing dependency of those under, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's like, like you just have this like crazy nihilism. Like people just say like, no, this is just the way people are and there's no alternative. And it's like, right. just go walk, go, go somewhere else, go somewhere else. Why aren't people the same there? Like, like yeah. how, how could you say that there's no option when, like, how could you just submit to this when there's obviously pieces at play? Um, and there's mm-hmm. a, I'm not sure if you've ever read the book, uh, Strong Towns. Um, have you, do you know that book? Mm-mm, no, I can't. I can't remember the author. I just, I just listened to it like a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's so good though. But it talks about basically economic density, uh-huh. um, and uh, how we have actually, because of our financing structure, we have this illusion of being able to pay for things that we can't pay for, mm-hmm. and in doing so, we think clearing out like five businesses that aren't producing individually. A lot of income or are you know lower grade or they're they need a paint job or the you know the they need fix cracks in the sidewalk Bl- plowing through all of them and then sticking a parking lot and a mcdonald's is right. actually progress is actually like a positive productive outcome because it looks fresh right but when it's like done on financing and you actually look at the the profit the 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 quote-unquote tax density of the area the five crappy businesses that just needed a makeover we're making, we're, we're pulling in twice as much as that one McDonald's was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you have this perverse incentive that happens at every layer. And it, it literally creates an effect on the people going to it. Um, to, I mean, just like you say, you would this, it, it creates, it recreates the environment, how people respond to it. You just, you feel disconnected from things. Um, and what kind of cultural effects does that have? 
Oh, absolutely. You know, in the late stages of communist Romania, uh, they had an obsession. I can't remember the guy's name. Cho, Kes, Cho Chosescu. Anyway, his shtick was knocking down ugly old villages and replacing them with these giant apartment buildings, mm -hmm. right? Which is modern. It's concrete. A concrete mm -hmm. apartment building, I'm sure, looks, you know, very clean when you first put it up. And now, you know, you go to the countryside in Romania, it's just horrific. Now, you know, think of what that does to the community, right? You yeah. no longer, you know what I mean? Have people Stale. sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. shooting the breeze. Nobody and, was a part of it. Yeah. Right. It, it feels like living in a prison. And, you know, a lot of that, it's, uh, you know, regulations, generally speaking, are much harder for small businesses to handle. Right. So if you are McDonald's and they pass some new weird law about, you know, some requirement with employees or some mandate you have to do or, or you know, even some quote unquote safety uh, regulation that, you know, customers never wanted. Uh, if they pass something like that, if you're McDonald's, you've got an entire bureaucracy of compliance people and they go through it. First of all, they lobby it. OK, so they might even inter intercept it on the way. Uh, to Congress and rewrite it in a way that benefits them. Uh, but even if they don't, it, they get a whole bunch of people and they're going to do up a manual and they're going to do best practices and, you know, they're going to take care of a lot of this stuff for you, the franchisee. And so they can handle all that stuff. They can digest all of it, right? They end up bumping the price of a Big Mac by a half a penny. On the other hand, if you are a mom and pop, you know, you've got some new rule on, you know, your ventilator is not green enough. And so you got to gut the $15,000 ventilator and put a new, you know, and I mean, you've got these in places like California, you got new rules like that almost every year. At some point, if you, for some reason, if you're insane enough to want to stay in business, uh, how, how much are you going to hike your prices? You know yeah. what I mean? When, you know, you go out to dinner and the you know, even sort of a hole in the wall, uh, wall restaurant is, is 15 bucks, uh, plus tip plus service charge. Plus by the time you're done with it, you know, I don't know, $5 of that is that regulatory harassment. And the problem is that the, that wipes out the little guy. And then of course, at that point, McDonald's benefits because if a bunch of restaurants go under, then now more people have to go to McDonald's. And so you end up with, you know, there are a lot of towns in, in the U S uh, or Canada where you go to a small town and there's nothing there but a, you got a gas station with like a 7-Eleven on it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you may have, I don't know, like a, you know, uh, a liquor store, especially, you know, if it's uh, some area of the country, you might have, you don't even really have general stores anymore. You're basically talking a Walmart. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so that, that mm -hmm. now is the town. So what used to be all of these little mom and pops with, you know, local color, local flair, you know, we serve, uh, what is it, lobster rolls or whatever the regional spot. No, all that is replaced now. You got a Walmart, a liquor store, and a 7-Eleven, and that is that. And people look at that and they say, oh, this is so horrible. What's happening in American culture? That's not American culture. That is American regulation. But people can't see it. It gets snuck in there because, of course, we have this permanent bureaucracy, which is maintained by fiat. And that permanent bureaucracy, they spend all day and night figuring out new ways to harass you. They don't necessarily do it because they hate you. They do it because there's budget attached to it. Every mm -hmm. new rule they stick in there has some kind of enforcement budget. A lot of them are, you know, bought by donors. So, you know, there's actually, in that context, you have a politician who's putting pressure on them to, you know, basically come up with a new business plan to get more budget and headcount. Budget and headcount is how Washington measures the size of their uh, empire, <laughs> right? So, you know, what, yeah. what, 
what profits is to a private business is budget and headcount to bureaucrats. So you've got this mm -hmm. system that it's almost like a machine for generating new burdens and new harassment, especially, I mean, above all on small business, but really across all workers. So what's shocking is how much is left. You know, like if you look in, you can do this on uh, Google Maps where you can go walk around U.S. cities. Okay, you, you know, you can kind of mm -hmm. go along in the little street view thing and you can chug yeah, along yeah. and you can look at all the stuff. And one of the things that strikes me is you look at the corner stores. All right, they're not corner stores anymore. They're corner houses. They have big plate glass windows and they have little step ups, all right, which is what you do to a store. Okay. Mm -hmm. And all of those are houses. You go somewhere like Philly, Baltimore, really any older city in the US, and none of those are stores anymore because they've been wiped out. So, you know, you're looking at maybe 80% of the small businesses wiped out in America because of the regulatory onslaught and the regulations, if anything, they're accelerating now. You've got these, you know, it's not really a bill unless it's got a trillion on it. Well, every trillion, you've got so many mandates, handouts, things that are distorting markets. They're either putting small businesses, especially, um, uh, you know, they're either putting them out of business or they're raining money down on, on, on some other outfit that's then yeah. going to chase them out by underpricing them to zero. You put it together, and I think the shocking part is, like, why does anybody actually manufacture things in America? I'm always shocked. Like when I meet some guy who's got like a little machine shop in Wisconsin or something. I'm like, how, what? Like, how do you manage? What what insanity has seized you? That like, yeah, you know. And, and 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 you know, seriously, I think the answer there is just that a lot of those guys they've been doing it for a long time. You know, maybe they've been in business for 40 years. Maybe it's the family business. And so, in other words, they're doing it because they've always done it. But once they exit, they're not coming back in. Mm -hmm. So There's I nobody that, there to replace them because it's too hard to start. You would be insane to start, right? In, yeah. Unless yeah. you've got some strong brand, like, you know, you're doing the sustainable mm -hmm. skateboard. You know, you've got these little kind of boutique niche ones where they can mm -hmm. charge a lot for some other reason, maybe because the founder is charismatic or has a brand name or something like that. But broadly speaking, those kinds of mom and pop anonymous style small manufacturers, you would have to be nuts to start something like that in America. Yeah. It's funny too, because there's, there's so many different factors at play, but the financing environment mm -hmm. so reinforces the problems of the regulatory environment. Absolutely. Because, you know, the regulatory environment creates the bad, uh, the bad structure that you have to work within, but mm -hmm. the financing environment benefits the big companies so much better sure. than the small. Massively. Because, right. And especially when they're creating new money into existence, because obviously big, just for the sake of big, is is, is uh, credit worthy, quote unquote, just right. because it's most likely to keep up with mm -hmm. inflated prices because it's, you know, it's got a stock on the stock exchange and everybody's going to stick their retirement in it. Whereas a small business now becomes risky in an environment right. where everything's inflating. Um, yeah, and that's a big issue right now with the collapse of the regional banks. And, you know, they're, they're getting sort of um, uh, absorbed one by one into the, into the banking oligopoly. Uh, and a big issue there is exactly that, that regional banks traditionally do those small business loans. Uh, they do real estate loans, uh, local loans. And what the big banks, and this has always been the case, what big banks in the money center do is that capital they get a hold of, they funnel a bunch of it overseas, Okay, mm -hmm. Because lending to a government, you know, if you can lend $10 billion to a government in one go or 
$10,000 to <laughs> a million <laughs> entrepreneurs, which one yeah. do you think is easier? Right. So a lot of that money goes overseas. A lot of it goes to big businesses. Again, they want to lend the money in big tranches. And so that that money gets sucked out of the communities. Uh, so, you know, if you're like a small entrepreneur and you're looking, I don't know, for a $10,000 inventory loan, right? I don't know, somewhere in Wisconsin, we'll stick with Wisconsin. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> you're not going to call JP Morgan. Care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You got to work with local regional bankers who you know, sort of do the work that the big that the big guys think is below them. But of course, the problem now is that we've got these regional banks collapsing specifically because we have a regulatory system that picks winners, that privileges the big ones. You know, the big ones cannot fail no matter what. We got your back, fellas. And then every time that you have stress in there, of course, the, you know, ones who end up failing are the little guys and then they get absorbed by the bigger guys and our economy takes another lurch towards oligopoly. Yeah. And at the same time, it only aggregates a systemic risk um, so that For the sure. inevitable, uh, the inevitable, inevitable cracking of the whole thing just sucks up, sucks up more people. Um, right. It, it, it accelerates it, um, not least because it creates a moral hazard where the yeah. because the big guys are always protected, like r risk pays in finance. This is, you know, one of the most important <laughs> facts in finance. You know, if you start studying finance, go through the CAPM model, risk pays, okay? You always get a higher mm -hmm. return for the risk. And so if the system is bailing out uh, banks for making, you know, risky bets, uh, then they're going to make a lot more of it, okay? And mm -hmm. now if you combine that with the fact that the regulatory system uh, is also combining small banks into big banks, then now what you're going to end up with is a bunch of massive banks who are paid to take, uh, like, unacceptable Huge risks. Risk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so this is exactly, you know, the what do you know? Theory works. That's exactly what we got. We got it in 2008. We're getting it right now. Yeah. <laughs> when you said theory works, what immediately popped in my head was Thomas Sowell's, uh, or Thomas Sowell's, um, uh, People say it's like, oh, socialism works really great in theory. It's like, no, it doesn't work in theory either. <laughs> yeah, right? It doesn't work in anything. <laughs> but this time, um, this time, because the people are pure of heart, they will do it right. Yeah, that's what it was, right? It was, it was just everybody, everybody who tried it before was just a meanie. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, let's let's dig into the banking crisis a bit. Right. Um, where are we in the timeline? Is this is it over? <sighs> is it like? Um, and maybe not like what's well, like what's a time frame for the next thing that happens, but how bad is the insolvency? Is it is it going to continue forward? And what the hell is the Fed? I mean, interest rates and treasuries like what's happening here? Like, why did even the small banks? Why are they failing? Maybe let's start there. Okay, so the genesis of the problem is that the Fed. Uh, pretended that inflation, well, okay, no, no, we can go one back. Um, the genesis is that the U.S. government wanted to buy a lockdown for COVID. And for mm -hmm. whatever reason they wanted to do that, if it was an intentional concentration of power uh, or if they were just, you know, made a mistake, at any rate, they wanted lockdowns. And lockdowns were incredibly expensive because you had to convince 51% of the voters to accept that, you know, you were going to basically uh, destroy their job. Or their business. And so between the PPP loans and the extremely generous unemployment benefits, they accrued something like $6 trillion 
in money printing over those two years. And at that point, you know, the, the obvious thing that was going to happen next was that you were going to get inflation take off. Remember Jack Dorsey, right before inflation started taking off, or maybe early in the process, Dorsey had come out and said something like hyperinflation is coming. And boy, everybody mm-hmm. just went to town on him. They were like, you are crazy. You are irresponsible. Right. So, we, you know, we'd all been predicting this. Uh, it started taking off. Uh, and then at that point, the Fed sort of cooed calmly. They said, no, 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 this is going to be transitory. Don't worry about it. We're, we're just going to normalize rates. We're going to bump them up a little bit, just kind of get you know back to normal. And the banks believed them. And unfortunately, they lied, whether intentionally or not. Uh, and they instead jacked rates up at, you know, it was the fastest uh, hike since the 1970s. That savaged the bank's balance sheets because a huge part of what banks have in the vault or as assets is government bonds or actually bonds more broadly. And when rates go up that high, those things drop by 20 or 40 percent, depending on when when you bought them and on which term. So you had all of these banks. There was one estimate, thousands of banks. Let's see. I think it was at least 500 that were like on the terminal list. And that was a paper out from uh, Stanford that came out around uh, March or so. So you've got all these banks now that just have these massive holes in their sheet. And so what the Fed and Treasury did uh, to try and fix it is that first off, they just out of the blue expanded FDIC insurance so that it's, it's not exactly clear if it covers everything. And there's, there's sort of statutory reasons, like if they cover everything, then they have to recapitalize it and this and that. But anyway, mm-hmm. it, it, it's sort of an open question, like is every bank account in America, even the rich guys, even the billion dollars that Apple's got in the bank, uh, are all of those covered? And then the other thing they did, it was the buy the FP, BTFP, I'm not gonna say the F oh, yeah. because because maybe we're going to be on YouTube. I got to I got to watch uh, I got to watch out for the censors. Uh BTFP. And what that did was essentially took that tried to f- fight the last war in 2008, okay? 2008 you had a bunch of banks who had assets. Those assets collapsed because they were they were fake, their valuations were fake. So what they tried to do mm-hmm. with BTFP is to say, okay, if you've got an asset that's gone down in value, we're going to lend to you against the original purchase price. Right. So it would be like mm-hmm. if you went out, you gambled on GameStop, you bought it at whatever, 200, it went down to $2. And then, you know, you're thinking, how am I going to tell the wife? And no problem. Your bank calls you up. I'm going to lend it. I'm, I'm going to lend on it at the original purchase price as long as you need. So between those two, that's what's stemmed Everybody the Everybody gets loss. this deal, right? Uh, for that, yes. I get this deal in right. my house. And and uh, and they're going to give me my loan for my you, stocks. They went you need down, to correct? up your campaign donations, guy. You need to uh, you need to do like FTX there. Yeah, no, you're going to need a bigger checkbook to get Damn that. Damn yeah, it. no, no. I mean, I mean, it was worth asking. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so so they they essentially try to bail like pre bail out the entire system, uh, and then they're hoping that that you know that that's going to stop it all. Now the issue here is that. Um, there are a number of assets that may go down so much that the banks, um, it, it, like that might start creating fear among depositors. Those depositors may pull out their money, okay? And then at that point, the bank has to sell the asset. Even though the asset, right, the, the Fed is pretending that your GameStop is still worth 100 bucks, okay? And, and you can keep hiding that, but now if people start uh, pulling their money out of your bank, well, 
you actually need the money. So at some point, you, you have gotta sell to sell that. the bond to That's give them their exactly deposits the problems. back. And then at that yeah. point, now the world realizes, hey, you lost uh, a bunch of money on that. So the, the, some of that, when the crisis started, that was coming out like because of fears, um, because of fears that banks were insolvent. So that was Silicon Valley Bank. Now what's really driving that process is that people are taking their money out of banks, which are paying like 0.2%, they're putting them into money markets. So that's this huge flood of money over to money markets. And when they pull it out of the bank, that then forces the bank to sell some of these assets that they're all pretending still have value. And so the question is, how hard is that going to hit? So their, their first move kind of pre-bailing out the banks, that has you know almost certainly taken a lot of banks off the ICU list. It's a horrible way to do it. I mean, you, you know, because you're, <laughs> you're just bailing them out ahead of time um, yeah. without even winding them up. Uh, but, it, it, you know, even then it may not be enough. That's going to depend on how hard things fall. So like commercial real estate, uh, for example, you know, ton, uh, especially regional banks, uh, a lot of their assets, I think it's about 15 or 20 percent that are parked in regional or in uh, commercial real estate. There's a lot of cities in the U.S. now where regional is just absolutely being savaged uh, because they have destroyed the uh, the downtowns. And so office space uh, isn't worth anything there. So if those losses get big enough, um, you know, that can add to the flow already going to money markets. And at that point, those banks do have to sell. And if it's enough, then they go sell then they become functionally insolvent. If they are, then there's likelihood of a run. And then you go right back to the process. So, I mean, probably it's going to be timed along the quarterly uh, earnings of various banks. So a bunch of those mm -hmm. are clustering in July. Uh, so I think, you know, we'll sort of have this, uh, Balaji has actually made that point. You know, when you're talking about Bitcoin, you've got, you know, you've got on chain, you've got real time, you, you, mm -hmm. you can see all the, all what's happening when it comes to bank, um, banks reporting their earnings. Well, that's something that, you know, generally they don't necessarily tell you what's happening, uh, except for their quarterly report. So that's, that's probably going to be the tempo. I think essentially every earning season, we're going to see whether, uh, more of them have fallen. Interesting. Is that, is that actually where, I guess it was March when yep. a lot of those banks started wrapping up. So that was, that would be the first yep. quarter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Banks stagger out, but yeah, there's a, there's a cluster yeah. of them probably late this month and then uh, early to middle next month. Gotcha. Yep. Ooh, exciting. Um, <laughs> I know, something to look forward to. That's right. <laughs> Twitter is going to be great. It's going to be entertaining. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, what is, what the hell does the Fed do? And what are the consequences of each? Like, there's no solution, obviously. There's, like, bad path number one and bad path number two. Um, but uh, Well, the, uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's a really... Uh, setting aside that they shut down. Um, just for <laughs> argument's sake, assuming that for some reason we wanted to keep the Are we Fed. taking it totally off the table? Are we <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just for now, just for argument's sake. Uh, if they wanted to fix it, there's a very, very easy way to fix it that would work a charm. Uh, which is that they use all of their financial firepower to force the federal government to stop deficit spending, perhaps even to run a surplus, start absorbing okay, yeah. all that money, because what that would do is end the inflation. Okay, And then mm -hmm. at that point, the Fed can actually lower rates. It no longer has, right? Because what's, what's happened now is that we have this massive inflation that came out of federal spending. So the Fed could have stood up to the feds and say, no more, I'm not gonna buy your trash. In fact, the trash I already have, I'm gonna sell it. So I'm gonna send 
rates soaring. I'm going to, you know, um, turn your government bonds into garbage unless you quit it. All right, they could have done that. But of course, they're not going to do that. There was actually a congressional hearing where a Congress thing asked Powell whether the federal government had caused part of the problem. And I mean, he was like offended. He, he was like, it, it's like you had insulted his wife. You know, he, he, he was like, well, no, 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 we don't, we don't interfere with, because he knows who his boss is. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. whatever the independent trappings are of the Fed. Uh, the that Fed was a knows, private bank. Somebody, I swear yeah. somebody told me it was a private bank. I don't yeah. understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, so he didn't do that. And so if you're not going to stop the source of the inflation, then how else do you reduce inflation? Well, easy. You just crush the private economy. So yeah. you let government spend everything they want to spend, but instead you make up for it by squeezing the private sector, right? And so mm -hmm. the metaphor I like is um, if you want to drive real fast on the highway and you have a traffic jam, well, the easy way to do that is just sweep all the other cars aside. You just crush those suckers and now you can drive any speed you want. So it's essentially clearing the decks that the feds can keep spending. So the easy way to fix it, at least in words, is that Pal just says no mas. You know, mm -hmm. that's it. Um, you, you know, you guys got to turn back to surplus. You have to, you know, the Fed's yeah, got... else is buying those treasuries, so... <laughs> yeah, I think the Fed's got something like six trillion or so of treasury. It's, it's, it's an enormous stack of treasuries. So, you know, not only do mm -hmm. you stop buying them, you start selling those things. And then at that point, the only way that the Feds can keep the price up on treasury is to end the deficits. Uh, so you could do that. but uh, uh, And then at that point, right, as inflation, at that point, it would actually come down on its own. So you could cut rates, you could actually give quote unquote stimulus. At any rate, you could bring rates back to normal, you know, two or 3%, which you would, even under Austrian economics, what you really don't want to do is take super low rates and, and, and ramp those up instantly to super high rates. Okay. You got to pace yeah. that stuff. And the reason is that when you raise the rates, you get a bunch of businesses that, that go under all at once. That's a recession. That's really hard on people. So mm -hmm. e even if you accept that, in the long run, we might like interest rates to be something like 5%. That's close. Uh, Reasonable. Five. Yeah. I mean, if you've got five and you've got 2% inflation, three, three and a half real was historical. That's, that's like the 800-year um, mm -hmm. trend uh, before central banks exist. So e even if you accept that the current rates are probably reasonably, um, they're actually reasonably low, even if you accept that, the problem is you can't go there this fast. Right. What the mistake the Fed did was rather than slowing down the cart, absolutely stomped on the brake. And then families, small businesses, they all go through the windshield. So that has to end. Mm -hmm. The only way that they can stop it is by standing up to the Feds, which they will not. Yeah. Well, what's, what are they likely to do then? This episode is brought to you by CoinKite, the makers of the cold card hardware wallet, uh, as well as an incredible suite of Bitcoin hardware devices. The, and the beauty of air gapping your Bitcoin keys with a, with a solid Bitcoin hardware wallet is they literally never touch the internet or a device that is connected to the internet. They stay on your hardware device. It is the most important security device and practice that you can have in the Bitcoin space. Get a cold card, a tap signer, you need a high-quality, open-source, Bitcoin-only, which is not just a smart choice. It is also an important security element. The less it focuses on, the lower the attack surface. And a long-trusted hardware wallet and company in the space. CoinKite has been around since the very early days. And they have a crazy dedicated group of enthusiasts 
because of how focused and foundational they have been for so long in this space, on top of just having so many cool devices and various tools for, for securing and transferring Bitcoin safely. And they are held to the highest standard and they have always had a long-term approach. Do yourself a favor, check out their store, go to bitcoinaudible.com slash cold card. And I'll be gosh darn, my code BITCOINAUDIBLE, all one word, all caps, gets you 9% off the cold card. So do it. Go check them out. Get a cold card for your cold corn. <laughs> Link will be in the show notes. Now let's get back to the show. Well, what's, what are they likely to do then? Uh, in your think- estimation. Yeah, yeah sorry. Uh, I think they're going to keep doing what, what they've been doing and muddle through um you know the fed's solution is every time it sees a problem shoot a trillion dollars at it mm-hmm. uh so I, I i think they believe that that's going to keep working for them um you know they're well they've got like 16 different names for that same gun <laughs> oh for sure <laughs> that's so so far the year is young yet yeah, so they're, they, they give it yeah, a new coat gonna, of paint every year. Yeah, well, and, and, and of course, you know, every time you throw a trillion out, you got to pray that the guys you bailed out, um, you want them to sit on it, right? So that it doesn't mm-hmm. cause inflation. That's what happened in 2008. You don't want it to flow. Yeah, yeah exactly. So in, in 2008, they bailed out all these banks, but we didn't get inflation. <clears> and, you know, a lot of Keynesians said, my God, you know, gravity is... Gravity is not real. It's amazing. You, you can do anything. And of course, the reason is because all these recipients of the bailouts just sat on it. So like, yeah. if I print a trillion dollars and I give it to you and you bury it in your backyard, it will not Nothing cause happens. inflation yeah, yeah, yeah. because it's not circulating like it functionally doesn't exist. Right. So that then becomes tricky because if the Fed solutioned all these problems, which are caused by it trying to fight inflation... Right. So, you know, it jacked up rates so it could stop the inflation because otherwise it would lose its independence. So if its solution to all the problems that that fall out of that is to shoot a trillion dollars at everything, then it's got to pray that those trillions stay put. And mm-hmm. one way that it's actually making sure that happens is that it it, it pays banks interest on their reserves. Uh, you've got the reverse repos. There's actually more in reverse repos than there are is physical currency in the country. Okay, and that's where they flood Holy out crap, all this money. That, oh my God, yeah, exactly. I didn't even know that. So a reverse repo is essentially, um, you can access it whether or not you're a bank. You can do it if you're a hedge fund. So like, if you're a hedge fund, you can essentially treat the Federal Reserve as a bank. You can park your dollars over there and then the Fed will pay you interest on it. And so the aggregate amount that's being paid for all those reserves it's on the order of 275 billion, the U.S. financial system actually earns more being paid by the Fed to park the money that the Fed printed. Okay, they're being paid more in that than they are in profits. I mean, well, that, that does point, a really good job to make sure that they're very customer centric yeah, and that they're worried yeah, about the economy yeah. and actual business and things yeah. like boots on the ground, you know, yeah. like real skin in the game there. Yeah. Jesus no, Christ. Uh, so it's shocking. I mean, at, at, at some point, your financial system is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Federal Reserve. You, you no longer have it. It has nothing to do with its one job. Like, yeah. it is, uh, it's totally oh, irrelevant sure. now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's say if interest rates stay high, um, how is this banking crisis 
unfolding then? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you said like probably we'll see more in July as we you know get into the earnings report. Um, but how how prior to the earnings report, what's your prediction on the legs of this thing on the momentum? Yeah, I wouldn't say probably per se. Um, there's you know definitely. There's going to be a lot less failures than there otherwise would be because they essentially bailed out the entire system, right? So, you know, we're, we're, it's not that the banks are less fragile. It's just that the banks were already bailed out. Um, So like, and in a sense, they all failed. I mean, like, like once you're giving them, exactly. Once you're giving them free capital, uh, you basically said that um, to first approximation, they're all insolvent. So I don't know that we're going to get more uh, if we, at least not in the U.S., if we do, then, yeah, they would likely cluster around um, the earnings reports. And then, you know, sort of the next shoe to drop here, though, is that we haven't even really gotten into the thick of the recession yet. Right. We still have Mm -hmm. mixed numbers on a number of things. So people are CEOs are acting like it's a recession. They're uh, cutting back on investment, on hiring, on hours worked. They're behaving as if they think it's a recession. There have been a lot of polls of CEOs saying that they expect a recession to come. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, professional economists generally predict a recession. So that's then going to be the next um, uh, sort of stage here where, of course, recessions are going to knock down a whole bunch of assets uh, just on their own. So in other words, what we've lost so far is because of the monetary shenanigans. But next, we're going to get the economic shenanigans where the actual mm-hmm. business goes bust, and then whoever lent that business or whoever its creditors are, those are then going to get hit. So on the one hand, we have the pre-bailout. On the second hand, uh, you know, working against that towards bankruptcy, we have those uh, high rates with all the money um, draining out. And then on the third hand, uh, we have the coming recession. So the question is, how bad is that going to be? Uh, They, you know, again, their standard toolkit for fighting recessions is to pump a bunch of money out. Recessions usually are deflationary on their own because basically money evaporates, right? Money yeah. that people thought they had vanishes in the Creating form of money. loans, right? Yeah. And so you tend to get uh, deflation anyway. So, and that's one of the side conversations that there are some people who are predicting deflation. It's entirely possible that we could get deflation if the recession is bad enough. But if we do, then the 100 year game plan at this point is that they print a metric crap ton of new money. And so, you know, that converts that deflation very quickly into the next leg uh, of the inflation. So I think we're going to keep getting these, you know, if you sort of map it out on a graph, we keep getting these kind of up and downs, up and downs on all these metrics, but they keep getting worse and worse. Um, Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know, it's like if you uh, sort of push a... um, a table or something like a little side table and it starts wobbling at, but mm-hmm. the wobbles are getting bigger and bigger. And yeah. you know, the, the question then comes, uh, I think from a Bitcoin perspective, when is this thing gonna collapse, right? When are we going to see some major regime change? And, you know, I think the key there is that they, because, well, they can keep printing a lot more than they have. Um, you know, compared mm-hmm. to other eras where governments have collapsed, they have enormously more power to, say, compel people to use uh, the confetti they print. I think that we've probably still got a ways to go. But the thing to keep in mind is that, you know, 
like catastrophic collapses of currency systems, they don't necessarily telegraph, right? Like, yeah. you know, you can have the same level of crisis that you've seen before. It just happens one more time, but now this turns mm -hmm. out to be the one that breaks. And in fact, I mean, we, we don't, nobody knows exactly when that break point comes. You know, we haven't had, it's been a hundred years since the last um, reserve currency swapped out. It's obviously a very, very different world in many ways than, what was that, about 19, uh, basically World War I. Um, so I think nobody knows at what point um, it's going to break. But I think what we can say is that inflation at this point, like the system, however much inflation it needed in the past, I think it needs more than before in order to stay alive. And it's like every crisis ups that ante that it needs more and more money printing just to say, um, just to stay ahead of the reaper. Yeah. Yeah. There's uh, uh, and this is something that we've talked about, like just including like all of the, if you condensed down so many of the different pieces that we've talked about on the show, it's basically like whether or not we have inflation or deflation, um, we're likely to get higher extremes of both and right. uh, and a far more volatile environment and far more volatile responses as time goes on. And what's funny is there's a there's a very obvious, there's a very simple reality underlying a lot of this as to why that's the case is because if you're constantly having to create, new loans in order to cover our last debt problem, our last crisis yeah. of insolvency. Right. Well, then whatever problem arises from that, you have interest on the new amount and right. you've increased the amount and the interest, whether if you increase the interest, but even if the interest is the same, it's a new percentage of a greater amount. And then the same thing with if there's deflation, like it's it, it's a never ending cycle if you don't actually balance anything out. Mm -hmm. um, and um, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it sort of turns into a ratchet where every time that they break it further, they never go back and repair that breakage, right? They just make yeah. it worse each time. And one of my, um, you know, in terms of sort of how fiat uh, sustains this, one of my favorite metaphors is, uh, let's see, I call it predator versus parasite. Okay, that traditionally <laughs> okay. governments um, act as a parasite. So, you know, they it's kind of a protection racket you know they take 10 or yeah. 20 or 50 percent uh of what you do they, they say you have to say thank you yeah right exactly um <laughs> but at least the best thing that you can say about that system is that you and the government have a common interest which is you being prosperous mm -hmm. right so if you're prosperous you can pay more tax um one of the areas i've really interested in is uh, Chinese economic history. And be because it's long, it's very well developed. Um, they knew very well, by the way, a thousand years ago, they had much better, uh, I mean, actually reasoned out uh, economic policy than we do today. But oh, at any rate, interesting. Yeah, yeah, so you have this, this sort of parasitic model and explicitly, okay, these are going by the questions in the imperial exam. Explicitly, it was saying that, like you want your region to be prosperous so that you can get more taxes because not only can you then send some of it upstairs, uh, you can also, you know, uh, keep public peace, right? So it, it was very explicit that government has a parasitic relationship. And I think what's concerning now um, is that fiat breaks this because fiat means that the government does not need us uh, to survive. It doesn't need us to be prosperous because it can just print its own. So we saw that in COVID where if we just sort of do a mental experiment, so like imagine early in COVID, you're a government bureaucrat and you're all having meetings, what are we gonna do about COVID? And some junior guy walks in, he says, hey, I got an idea. 
Let's shut down half the economy. We're going to lose half the tax revenue, but that's okay because we don't need you guys anyway. So we can just lay off all the government workers. We can lay off you guys, politicians. You'll just stop taking a salary. Uh, we, can, we can get through this as a team. All right, so you would be out of there, right? I mean, immediately. They would be like, you are insane, <laughs> right? No way can we shut down the economy because we need the tax revenue. Mm -hmm. And so, but in fact, what they did instead is that they did shut down the economy and then they pumped out so much money that they replaced that. Remember when the, when COVID first hit, I was up in Montreal and there was an estimate from the Quebec government that the shutdowns were going to cost, it was either 40 or 50% of GDP, therefore approximately 40 or 50% of tax revenue. Okay. That was before they had any of these, you know, magic bailouts where they were going to pump out the money. Yeah. All right. So that, uh, taking that as sort of a natural experiment, like what would tax revenue or what would the economy look at look like without those bailouts? Something um, along that order. So but what happened instead, of course, is that they printed it. They printed it in Canada, in the U.S. They printed it almost everywhere in the world, which is what caused that inflation. But the point is that that dynamic right, where they no longer care if you're prosperous, they don't care if your business fails. It's not their problem because they print their own budget. So A, that's a problem because it converts them from parasite into predator. B, that is certainly not sustainable. Yeah. Right? The parasite yeah. thing is sustainable. You can do that for a thousand years. You can keep coming in on a protection racket, taking 20% off. Sure. What is not sustainable is cranking it up to the level it is now. If you, you know, the last crisis was very, very good for them. One of my biggest fears is that they enjoy the last crisis so much that they're actually seeking out the next crisis. Uh, perhaps they're doing that in Eastern Europe. And if, if that's the case, if these guys have concluded that they can be predators, they don't have to worry about prosperity, they don't have to worry about any of it, then I think that accelerates the collapse dramatically. Yeah. It's kind of like the difference between a parasite that has found like a balance to make sure it hosts its host stays exactly. healthy nice. and yep. a cancer that just runs wild, has no barriers, has no way to even has, doesn't even have a feedback mechanism to understand whether or not it is, it's in balance. It just eats until, yep. you know, the whole thing's done. Um, Absolutely. Um, how does this play into... Actually, I'll ask a more direct question. Um, with regards to people who have money in the bank, <laughs> what is, what's the larger risk? You know, what's the, what's the short to midterm situation for what they should do or what they should worry about in regards to the banking crisis and the monetary crisis and the ability to access money? Um, like, where do you think the larger risks are in what the concept, what plays, what plays out? Yeah, I think near term, it is not that bad of a concern. Like, for example, if you've got money in the bank, being concerned that you won't be able to get it out. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a big concern in the near term. And the reason is because they will bail out the first series of catastrophes. They'll bail out the second, they'll bail out the third. There is some point where they'll stop bailing out. And so, you know, once mm -hmm. we start seeing wave after wave, that's when uh, you want to get a lot more serious and sharpen things up and actually pull stuff out of the bank. I think at the moment, we're not there yet. They can still bail things out. You know, one of the keys in Austrian economics is that whenever you're assessing um, a decision maker, you always look at it through their eyes. 
Okay, so through mm-hmm. the eyes of Janet Yellen, uh, if there's a bank that's collapsing, her preferred strategy is to throw a trillion dollars at it, right? Or mm-hmm. Jay Powell. Okay, so uh, meaning that the first round will get bailed out, the second round will get bailed out, they will keep going, and then there will, there will be some point where some number will go wonky. So, for example, the market will start to doubt whether they can actually bail out anymore, um, or you know, government bonds will soar. This happened in the UK late last year. So there will be some point where the numbers go way off. That's the point to pull your money out. <laughs> Get the heck okay. out of it. Because the first guys are going to be bailed out. The last guys are going to be hold, holding the bag. And remember, all those happy outcomes of the first series of bailouts, right? The vast majority of them are going to take their money or, you know, whatever. They're going to get their check from the FDIC or, or, uh, or uh, the securities um, counterpart. They're going to take that money out. And they're going to put it into another bank. And then, you know, in, in the worst case scenario, that bank fails. Okay, they take their money and they put it out somewhere else. People mm-hmm. will ride that down. And there is some point where the government will, you know, it will say, nope, nope, no more. We're, we're cutting off the worst banks. Or, uh, you know, maybe you'll take a haircut. Uh, you lose some percent of your money. Uh, and then that'll accelerate. So I think near term, you don't necessarily have to panic in terms of losing your money in the bank. Now, the separate question is, how do you protect your assets and how do you protect yourself as well uh mm-hmm. and you know in terms of assets if you think that stagflation is coming thankful which i do uh thankfully we have a wonderful uh experiment with stagflation in the 1970s and we know exactly what took off which is that gold went up i want to say 30 fold it went up just massively that was really the birth of the kind of gold bug movement uh real estate um held up Stocks held up, surprisingly. I think people always forget stocks, they get overvalued in the boom cycle in, in, in the boom stage of the cycle, but fundamentally, uh, most stocks are real things. Right? Like if you buy mm-hmm. a share of Apple Computer, you're buying a share of a building and you know, factories or relationships with factories. And I mean, that is actually real things. So stocks, stocks hold up, I think, a lot better than people expect. Yes, when you first hit a recession, uh, you tend to get a decline. But, you know, talking sort of long term, um, stocks are not all that horrible. Um, and then aside from that, you know, of course, a business. I mean, a business is really ideal. You should be if there's anything that you have to offer the world, whatever it is, if it's if it's fixing people's, you know, uh, screens uh, on their porches, it doesn't matter what it is, whatever it is, do it. Um, because financial independence is I mean, it's 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 good for you. It's like eating healthy mm. foods. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's good to have, yeah, like control over your destiny. And of course, you know, any sort of business you have, any kind of skill, those are, are not only are they invulnerable to any of these kind of fed shenanigans, um, it, you know, if the whole system collapses, then it's, it's very important to be able to do something useful. Like if all yeah. I could do was give economics lecture, when the hard time comes, I starve. <laughs> <laughs> when, like if we actually hit that worst case scenario, I promise you, I'm going to be fixing people's porches because that's what people are actually going to want. They're going to be like, nah, man, the mosquitoes. They'll be like, economics, what am I going to do with that? Fix my mosquitoes. Yeah, economics are already broken, okay? Like, we are, we're already past the point in which that would have been a useful conversation. I probably won't tell them about the economics. They'll be like, you're one of them. They're like, no, 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 I'm one of the good ones. So. I'm terrible at economics, but I know how to use a hammer. I like you, sir. I like you, Mr. Peter. <laughs> 
Well, uh, uh, I wanted to ask, I mean, I know we're uh, kind of running out of time here, yep. um, but uh, I also wanted to ask, like, what's your take on the multipolar world that we are in? Like, how, how does this affect the, the larger monetary picture and the larger, larger political picture of where is the U.S.? Where is it headed in, in kind of the global picture, do you think? Yeah, I think the U.S. is taking itself um, out of the game. Like, we're actually doing China's work for it. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, China's trying to push us out and in a sense they can just kind of sit back and chill because we're doing it to ourselves. The sanctions on Russia's central bank were just an astoundingly dumb own goal. Um, whatever you think about, uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine, taking away Russia's central bank dollars, we didn't even do that during the Cold War, right? We had we had like hot wars everywhere with the Soviet Union. It was an existential struggle to the death. Unlike this, I mean, Putin's mm -hmm. not going to invade the United States, okay? He doesn't. He's apparently got the resources for Ukraine. It ain't going to happen. So this is a much lower stakes conflict compared to the actual Cold War, like in the fifties or sixties. And we didn't even do it then. And the reason we didn't is because it is extraordinarily important that countries understand that if they have the U.S. dollar, it is safe. Mm -hmm. And we broke that sacred trust. Otherwise they won't they do won't business do in it. Yeah, yeah they'll, they'll, they'll diversify into something that is safe, whether it's the yen or, or the euro or gold or, or if China stands up some currency that, you know, if they have it backed, for example. Uh, there are a number of other assets, including Bitcoin. I mean, there's, there's, there's thousands of alternatives. There's thousands of ways to park your money that do not involve the U.S. dollar. And only one of those can be seized because the U.S. government doesn't like your policy. Now, at the time, the saving grace was that you could argue, well, sure, but most countries don't invade their neighbors. And so, you know, um, maybe countries aren't afraid. But a, that's, that's not actually the lesson that countries took. So, you know, there have been a number of world leaders who have specifically said, look what happened to Russia, including Indonesia, mm -hmm. who probably doesn't plan to invade any Ukraines. Um, but, <laughs> you know, it, it, it establishes a brand new rule to the U.S. dollar, which is that these are your dollars, sacred trust, unless, unless we don't like what you do. Yeah. And, you know, the U.S., the, the Biden administration specifically is ramping up a lot of um, uh, complaints and threats against other countries. I just profile they're, they're pissed off at uh, Uganda for their LGBT policy. Uh, that kind of thing, if you're interested in the U.S. dollar remaining safe, that kind of thing is very, very interesting, very, very concerning. Right. So the U.S. is and, you know, then, of course, you have the underlying inflation. You've got the debt ceiling debacle where they did absolutely nothing to um to stop the uh, the insolvency. So you put it together mm -hmm. and the US dollar is nowhere near as safe as it used to be and it's getting uh, less safe fast. And so then the question becomes, okay, but what could replace it? And the question there is, so that, I think the most likely path is that the US dollar gradually loses shares. So countries uh, diversify out of their official holdings. That then makes the dollar go down. As it goes down, you have an increasing number of dollar holders who they don't really care one way or the other. Like Japanese mm -hmm. banks hold a lot of dollars. It's not because they like the U.S. per se. It's just because it's stable. Uh, they yeah. don't have an opinion pro or against. And at, if you know countries start digging out of the dollar, uh, China is no doubt would like to pay countries to get out of the dollar. So it would like to accelerate that. If that starts to hit the dollar fundamentally 
then you can get this runaway process where even people who they had no beef with the dollar, Japanese banks didn't have a beef with the dollar. But if the dollar starts going down a bunch, they, then they are going to get out leave too. anyway. Yeah, right. And at that point, you have this game theory where the first guy to sell is the only one who survives. And so you have yeah. a rush for the exit. Uh, I think that the only you know, reasonable way for that to really or the most likely ways for that to get into a rush to the exit uh, would be either the U.S. continuing this weaponization, weaponization of the dollar, you know, tying it to your country's policies, uh, or, of course, what I've been calling the nuclear option, which is that uh, China puts out some kind of BRICS-associated currency that is actually backed, presumably, yeah. by gold. I don't know if they have the balls to do that, but if they did, that <laughs> would be an absolute game changer. Um, people mm -hmm. wouldn't trust it initially, for sure, right? No, yeah. Nobody trusts China with good reason. Uh, nobody would trust it initially, but you know there are ways you could structure it. You could, you know, you could have like a a, um, uh, a group of different countries who are managing it. Uh, if if people can bring that confetti to some place and get an exchange for gold, if that's you know nobody's interfering with that uh, and it continues mm -hmm. for a while, um, there are ways that you can guarantee these things. So, for example, Dubai a couple of years ago, Dubai was trying to bring in. Uh, foreign investors. And the concern at the time was that Dubai was perhaps, there were rumors that Dubai is corrupt. Uh, and, you know, people were concerned about um, putting their assets there or even uh, putting themselves there. And I can't remember the exact details, but Dubai, I think, hired like a former Supreme Court, whatever it is in Britain, Supreme Court mm -hmm. justice equivalent, yeah. Uh, hired one or multiple and essentially had them as as this overlord of their court system in order to build trust. OK, so there are creative ways that countries can build trust. You know, I think a lot of the um, sort of skepticism towards China's uh, prospects for beating the dollars, they assume that China is as dumb as the U.S. And they're not. You know, there are a lot of countries mm -hmm. that have a lot of smart people um, that there are ways that you could create, for example, a gold-backed currency that people would actually believe. If you did that, then immediately on paper, the U.S., I, 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 I mean, it would be worthless. It would be an inferior asset. Now, of course, a lot of people would take time to shift over. You've got transaction costs. You've got taxes. There's a whole bunch of trans yeah. uh, transitional costs. But I, I think it is entirely possible for the U.S., uh, to lose its reserve currency status. If that were to happen, I think it's probably a 10 to 20 year process. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, obligatory uh, question at the end, the end um, is, is what, what role, role uh, will Bitcoin, Bitcoin play in the bigger, bigger picture? picture. Um, um, and because I, I mean, the audience, audience will inevitably know that, that like, I think, I think particularly, particularly because, because in the environment, the environment you talk about where the financial system and the monetary system becomes seen as a political tool, as a weapon, the uh, the incredible benefit or the incredible incredible selling point of bitcoin is its radical neutrality mm -hmm. um and but it is also for the reverse caveat it's also probably the one that's most difficult to trust for kind of the old world yeah um to to understand why they would trust it um so how do you see it fitting into that picture that you painted yeah, so um, I guess uh, first point is that I think a lot of us in Bitcoin say that um, Bitcoin has problems because it's difficult to understand. Okay, mm -hmm. but if you sit down and actually go through how fractional reserve banking works, <laughs> you, you know, 
yeah, yeah, there yeah. was an academic in Switzerland. The guy's name escapes me, but he he took out a loan at his local bank, and then he sat down. He arranged this ahead of time. He's a professor. He arranged ahead of time to sit down with the people processing the loan to understand whether or not the bank created the money. Okay, this is like three years ago or something. All right, mm-hmm. and this guy's well known in currency. And in, in other words, the <laughs> top experts in fiat do not understand how fiat works. How it works. Not <laughs> even the mechanics of it. Okay, like he had no paper to go to. He literally did this himself. All right. So whereas Bitcoin works exactly how people think money works, which is that, you know, it's like having a gold coin in a tin can. All right. If you have it, you own it. End of story. <laughs> QED. Yeah. If you don't, you don't. This is not there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I think in a way we sell ourselves short that Bitcoin is extraordinarily easy to understand. The only issue mm-hmm. is that there are a lot of things in this world that people don't understand, but they don't need to. They just need to see other people using it. Right. So credit cards, for example, stop 20 people on a street in New York and ask them how a credit card works. Ha ha. But other people use it. So I think that Bitcoin absolutely is going to win, but it'll be slow. It'll be I mean, unless we can proselytize at a much, much faster pace than we currently are. Maybe if we I don't know if a Bitcoiner takes over uh, CNN and and turns them into a Bitcoin only network, then I guess we could. (laughs) But yeah, like like without a dramatic ramp up in our marketing, uh, I think it's going to take a while. And so that then leads to the next question of what happens when fiat dies. And I think it, it, it we know it'll die. Um, we all know how the book ends. The question is how each chapter ends. And I think that the big question there in terms of Bitcoin is when is it going to die? Uh, if it's going to die yeah. in the next three years, then almost certainly uh, gold inherits the earth because gold has done this thousands of times through history. We know exactly mm-hmm. how it ends. Um, <laughs> so gold takes over and then we go basically to where we are now, which is a much, much better world because we have a harder money. And I think Bitcoin continues taking market share from gold because Bitcoin is a superior version of gold. Right? Gold mm-hmm. inherently needs to be um, centralized. It needs intermediaries. Governments know how to reach out and have meetings with intermediaries. And so one thing leads to the next. You know, I think I, I, before Bitcoin, I was a gold bug my entire life. And one of the standard debates you would have when you're talking with fiat bros is they would say, if gold is so amazing, how come no country uses gold? And the answer is because governments are, are you know, very interested in violence. Um, and mm-hmm. so they, they find the gold and they, they effectively seize it. Either they commandeer it uh, or they physically seize it as FDR did. Um, so I think that, you know, Bitcoin is a superior version of gold, particularly in the modern economy where almost every dollar you transact is done remotely, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, what, what percent of your spend is hand to hand? It's actually, yeah, in Yeah, person. exactly. Like, like maybe 0.1%. Yeah. Um, and so in that context, you know, however much gold functioned as a fiat replacement in like 400 AD, uh, that's much reduced today, you know, with the mm-hmm. internet and with the modern banking system. And so I, I think that in that hypothetical collapse in like three years, gold takes over, but I think Bitcoin takes over, um, its, its adoption actually speeds up from there. If on the other hand, fiat's got another 20, 30, 40 years to go, then I think we just skip the gold stage and we go directly to Bitcoin. All right. I think that's a great place to end. <laughs> um, dude, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you for all this stuff. Honestly, like I said, I, I, I try to keep up with it 
pretty well. Um, and I see your stuff in my feed all the time. I'll definitely actually, you know what, let me go ahead and let you give you the opportunity to shill and, uh, point people to where they can find you. Okay. Right. Oh, all right. I got to shill my, uh, my daily videos. So I post them on Twitter <laughs> at Prof Stonge, P-R-O-F-S-T-O-N-G-E. Uh, and then I also do a weekly roundup podcast because I think some people can't necessarily find them running all over the place. So uh, anyway, if you check me out on Twitter, Prof Stange, uh, you'll find all the links to that stuff. And then, then of course, I've got a Substack, So that's for uh, longer form, kind of getting more in depth on stuff. Sweet, sweet. Awesome, dude. Thanks for joining me, man. It's good hanging out. Yeah, thanks, guy. Yeah. And, you know, I always uh, love reading your stuff and uh, it's always an honor when you do my stuff as well. So, yeah, I really appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. All right, man. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, and uh, just a heads up, um, hopefully the first part will be dropping tomorrow, but we have a great piece. We have a great read from Adamant Research and Unchained on how to position for the bull run and that is with Turtemeester and crew over there um, and they've had some really really great they they've re released a report basically in the heart of the bear market um multiple times uh three times already um uh, or within three different markets and basically assessing doing their breakdown for you know where the market is and where they think it's going and uh, I got to say, it's it's been one that I've seen from the very beginning and is definitely one that you're going to li want to listen to at, and or read uh, going into this. So that's just a heads up on what we're doing tomorrow. Uh, like I said, hopefully, fingers crossed tomorrow. Um, but uh, uh, a huge thank you to Peter for this um, and obviously for his writing and keeping up with all of this stuff because... You know, the real value of the information age is being able to curate and filter that information. And uh, he is one who I rely on to do that um, for me, especially in the, the banking and economics side of thing. He is, he is one of my curators, and I really appreciate that for helping me keep up with all the things. So I highly recommend the follow and checking out, uh, especially if they are creating a new show um that's actually really exciting so i will have the link to his twitter in the show notes um and substack as well uh so that if you are not following you can go check it out another thank you to fold and to CoinKite for sponsoring this show and making it possible for me to do this full time and enabling me to be a curator for others um and hopefully for peter on the bitcoin side of things that is the point of this show and it would be very, very difficult without them. Um, so check out our sponsors. The links for all of this great stuff are right there in the show notes. Hot damn. I can't believe that. That was so unexpected that that's where those will be. And also, uh, for a number of you who have asked me recently about um, people who are trying to figure out where to start, and particularly in my show, uh, there is a ridiculous number of episodes and I know it can feel overwhelming, uh, to, to people who are new, new to the space. So I just created a Bitcoin basics playlist on Spotify and I'm going to try to figure out how to do this on a number of different, uh, uh, of the main podcast apps. I feel like there are methods, um, but I'll aggregate it and I'll maybe post it on the website or something, which is still in a really rough state, but it's good to have there just in case. So subscribe. Hit me up on Noster, 
follow the show on Fountain, and I'll catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. I can't change the direction of the wind, but I can adjust my sails to always reach my destination. Jimmy Dean